You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London South East. This is the show that provides informative, educational and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello and welcome to the Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins and today I have the privilege and honour of speaking with Mark Dampierre, the former research director at Harvey's Lansdowne. Mark retired in 2020 after nearly 40 years in the industry and 22 years at Harvey's Lansdowne. Prior to that, he worked at White Church Securities and he set up IFA Churchill Investments. Mark, you're semi-retired now, essentially, but you're still doing a lot of work in the industry. Welcome to the Investing Podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast with me. And I want to start really with yourself in a sense of what have you learned the most? I want to start, you've been in the business for 40 years and you've got so much and you're helping so many people now. You've got other podcasts going on because I know that you you do this other stuff where you're asking questions and you're, people are posing deliberations to you and you're going, oh, you know what, maybe this is a sort of situation to go on. Oh, well, that's a deep question to start with. What have I learned? Well, actually, what I've learned is you keep learning. There is no stop which is why I'm actually very active on Twitter. People say to me, oh, why on earth are you on this? Because you know what it's like if you're on Twitter. It's a bit like the hanging mob sometimes. But there are some very good people on there. You know, IFAs, fund managers, economists. And, you know, they actually talk to you on Twitter. A lot of them are really good. They come back to you. And so you learn lots more. And so I think that's the biggest thing that you just you just don't stop. I could patter away my way through the stuff that everyone's heard, but it's still the same. I mean, the most important thing is patience. And people aren't patient. Investors aren't patient. I would say the media don't make you patient. They talk a long-term story, but their business model is inherently short-term. Uh, and the internet has done lots of good things, but lots of damage as well, because the information flow to investors is enormous. And it's highly emotional and emotions and investment just don't work well. So loads of my mistakes in the past have been emotional ones from a personal portfolio. And I think, why the hell did you do that? You idiot. You know, you didn't need to do that. Why did you just leave it alone? So I often say to people at times of crisis, switch off the screen, go and play golf or do whatever you do, fishing, anything, but stop looking at all the news. I mean, have a look at it occasionally, but you just you get these people say, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. And you think, well, I've got to sell everything. And then you find a few months later that actually it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of capitalism. And you just stayed invested. But it's easy for me to say all that. It is really hard to do. That's the biggest mistake that investors make, I think. Just impatience and the thought that they have to keep trading. By the way, I'm not any kind of trader. I mean, I'm absolutely useless at trying to do that sort of thing. Timing markets are very, very difficult. I'll probably contradict that, by the way, later in the interview, if you ask me something else. Because I do have some very firm feelings about where we're going, which sort of contradicts a lot of the stuff. The other thing, by the way, I'd say is that I think investors become trapped in their own history. That is their last few years. And I think you have to look back. I watched Neil Ferguson do a talk once, a historian, and it was just after or during the financial crisis. And he asked the audience, has anyone read about the Great Depression? Have you read what books have you read about it? And about three people held up their hand. And he said, well, how the hell do you know what's going on now if you've not even read that? He said, your history is this, but you need to go way back to look at what's happened to get a better perspective. And I think perspective is really important. So I sort of do challenge myself and I find Twitter quite good because I'll take an opposite stance sometimes. 
I often will agree with what there's someone saying, but then I'll take the opposite stance to see whether I can sort of get a, an argument going and whether that's well-founded, because I think I'm as equally trapped as well. And I think that my retirement has made me, or a few years before I decided to retire, sort of thinking about it on the way, it started to make me look back. And I've been really lucky. If you look at me, I've had the bull market, because I would say we've had a 40-year bull market because it started basically when I started. I mean, I bought US treasuries at 15% for clients. Wow. You see your, your expression is, whoa, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> but that was my history. It's what we were thought about. And, and hey, UK interest rates for us, for my generation, 8% was low and 15 to 17% was high. So look at equitable life. It's huge mistake was the thought that interest rates would never go below 8%. So it didn't insure against it. And so that's what I kind of challenge myself is what we've seen now just going to continue. And I don't think this decade is going to work out in the same way, which is also lousing up my own investment, by the way, because I don't actually know what to do right now. <laughs> well, that's a brilliant context to go where I wanted to go with the thing about context and, and history. I want to go back now a little bit to White Church Securities and your IFA at Churchill Investments. Your start there, you're new in the industry. What was it that you know now that you didn't know in the 80s when you're going in fresh-faced, going, oh my gosh, and you've given all these responsibilities? I'm asking that in a sense of lots of people want to get into the financial industry, and what sort of nuggets could you give them about the learning and about grabbing opportunities? Oh, Peter, it's so different. Yeah, you know, I started when there was no compliance. There was no regulation, and I didn't know anything. I came in at White Church because my next door neighbour was Kian Seeger, who formed White Church Securities. He was a fund manager before that. And we'd had a couple of chats over the garden fence on investment because I was sort of vaguely interested in it. And I joined an operation which was described as one man and his dog. And I think I was the dog, effectively. So I learned on the job, which you can't do now. I mean, it's really hard for me to say to a youngster, what to do. you've just got to go for the full qualifications now. And I just didn't have that in those days. So I learned on the job, which has been great. But you have to ask lots of questions. You have to have someone like Kian, who was incredibly patient, because I'd often ask the same question about 10 times. And I used to try and challenge him sometimes. But, you know, you've just got to get yourself. First of all, you've got to love it. If you don't love investment, don't bother. I mean, it's like any job. I mean, I could never pass an exam if something bored me to start with. So you've got to do that. But you've got to do all the qualifications. You've got to read a bit. I'm not the world's best reader of books on finance, partly because most of them are so boring. Lots of them deal with share. I'm not a direct share person. I've got a few shares in the portfolio, but, you know, I'm not particularly great at picking shares. They're not really my thing. And I think that's tough. And a lot of the books do that. That's not for me. If that's for you, that's great. It's not for me. So stuff I like is history stuff. So I thought you might ask me about books. And there's two books, I think. Russell Napier's book on bear markets is, is very readable. I'm a history. I love history. I did history as a degree. That's a fantastic book because it goes through the great bear markets. You learn so much from that. And then uh, Sandy Ken, who ran Edinburgh Investments, has done two books. And I forget their actual names, but one is on the Internet. Well, one's on actually canals and railways and the Internet. And he's just written another one. And again, I'm sorry, I'm getting too old. I can't remember names. But they come from a sort of history. And the canals and railway one's brilliant because he looks at the internet boom. And if you replace railways and canals and put internet, it's all the same. So 17th and 18th century goes through the newspapers. It's exactly the same. So having a sense of history really does help you in investment. And I don't think people read about history at all. So I think that's incredibly important so if you're a youngster starting read 
find stuff and read it. Find what you enjoy reading, partly. And I'd say get onto things like Twitter. I read an awful lot of stuff on good stuff on Twitter. And I think most, as I said, most people think Twitter's just a, a chat show. Well, it can be, but there's an awful, awful lot of really good stuff. And youngsters, in my view, don't see that. There's lots of people share their opinions and thoughts and you can take them or not. But where would you get all that normally? I mean, that's one of the great things on the Internet, I think, that is available to you now. That is, wasn't available to me 40 years ago. Best thing I had was Money Management magazine, which stopped publishing a few years ago. That was the Bible because that was the magazine, monthly magazine, because it was a seriously good magazine. But now all that's all the information is at your fingertips. Fantastic. Yeah, obviously the FT has been going for a long time and that was my first opening to what's going on in the world of finance. I didn't know anything about finance at all. And that was my Bible to start with. But, you know, you've talked about good books and you've got a good one here, which we'll talk about a bit later on. And that talks about the history of funds as well and the allocations of and how to do it and how to simplify things. We'll talk about that in a little while. I wanted to talk at the moment, if I may, about going into Hargreaves Lansdowne, your start, the middle, and the end. And we're going to talk about a few things in the, with regards to that journey. And also the fact that obviously it was essentially a very, very small business, I would say, if I'm not being disrespectful to them. But when you left X amount of years later, it was a significant size. So I wanted to talk about that and how you and the team grew that and supported thousands and thousands of investors. Because the whole point of investing is to, to better your life, I think, from wherever you start. You can improve your life by saving and doing it prudently. So I want to talk about that, if I may, Mark. It's all about improving the quality of your life. That's what I've always said. Completely right. Correct. So where do you want to start with HL? Start at the beginning. You, you went in there very young and middle and end, please. Well, I wasn't that young. I was, <laughs> I'm an old git now. So that was early 40s. So uh, Peter Hargreaves rang me up one day and said, oh, I hear you're a bit unhappy. Why don't you come and have a chat? Which I did. I have to say it was the best decision that I've ever made. Because working with Peter and Steve Lansdowne was fantastic. Inspirational, I don't know the, the, those words, but they were fantastic people to work with. Completely different characters themselves, but they respected each other. And so they worked really well together. That's a big thing. To, and the other thing is that loads of people who run businesses or start businesses, that's what I would say, is just because you're good with clients, you can be a brilliant IFA, but you get promoted or you, you start running your own business. Some people are good at running your own business, but just because you're good at, with clients doesn't mean you can run a business. And Peter and Steve knew how to run a business and not many people know how to do that, actually, to be frank. They were very, very good at it and they were very good at sharing that and getting people on board. I mean, in the early days of HL, well, I wasn't there right to start with, but anyway, I mean, they started from a back bedroom. You've got to say something, from a back bedroom to a FTSE company, why isn't there a sir in front of their names or, or Lord? Because I see a lot of completely average people get stuff, and these guys, no one has achieved that. Let's say that, no one has achieved to go to a FTSE company from a back bedroom without any acquisition and no debt. I think that's a remarkable achievement. Absolutely remarkable. I mean, we obviously, we've helped them along the way, but by God, it, it was their drive. <laughs> you can't take it away from them. So when I joined, HL was, well, HL was quite big, by the way, from, from companies I've been in. It was probably about 100 people. And there's over 2,000 now, just to give you an idea of size. And it was a very exciting, I worked a few yards from Peter, fantastic to work with, always ideas coming through. He was always interested in ideas and we just sort of, what can I say? The business just developed from there. I can remember the platform. We already had our own self-select PEP in those days. 
I went to see Transact. Well, actually, they came down. They were the first platform that I saw. And I remember going to Steve Lansdowne and saying, yeah, you want to meet these guys? This is something, this is really good. Because I love the idea, because I'm useless to admin. Most private investors aren't great at admin. Boring as hell, but really important. And I said, well, here's, here's your backroom office for the client. You've got everything here. Why would you, once you're in one platform, why would you want to move? Unless the administration was poor, that's what you want. And kind of that, the whole platform business, I think, developed from there. Because they grasped that really, really well. And obviously, that, that's how it sort of moved forward. And Peter was always interested in clients, funds, investment. He was a great marketeer. And being able to speak very plainly, fairly jargon-free way. I remember him taking a pension form from Standard Life, and it was 36 pages. And he ripped every page out and said, you just need this one page, Mark. <laughs> this is the bit you need. <laughs> he said, no wonder no one does a pension. Would you write for through 36 pages? Each page, he said, 10% of people drop off. So he was trying to make things simple and easy for people. And it's been copied, of course, by everyone else, really, frankly. Yeah, I can only say it was the most exciting days of my life. Really, really great. I had a wonderful years at HL. Absolutely fabulous. Best time ever. And I got paid for it too. It was even better. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, you absolutely brought together so many people in a sense of people that hadn't envisaged they would ever be able to save anything, never mind invest anything. You educated them, you informed them, you made them aware. They delivered returns that were beyond their dreams for many. So you guys did exceptionally well, you know, the whole team, ladies as well that were in the team. So I want to talk a little bit because obviously the elephant in the room is towards the end where the media got hold of all what was going on all things Woodford, that he developed his fund, he went solo, he built it up, the media took it up, and then the media essentially brought it back down to earth again. So share what you can, and just let's talk a little bit about the, A, the best buy list, which has always brought a bit of contention, and B, a little bit about the Woodford fund, if we may. Uh, Yeah, I am a bit limited, I guess. But I suppose I'd actually start off with saying, just using a phrase that a fund manager actually sent to me. He said, Mark, you know, you try and do the best for clients, but it just doesn't always work out that way. And effectively, it's that simple in one respect. I often feel like saying, yeah, we, we want to do our best, but sometimes you read stuff in the media, you think, actually, our starting point appears to be, well, actually, we deliberately try to find the worst fun possible and put clients into it. I mean, this, it's absolutely absurd to, to even go there. So, I mean, I'd known Neil Woodford for... Well over 30 years. I, by the way, I didn't know he's not a friend or anything like that. Just a business person that I, that I knew in the business. Like I know, I've known Nick Train for even longer, actually, in that way. But I've never met him socially either. But they, they were great fund managers. And I have to say, I don't really want to sit here and defend Neil completely because he obviously made a huge cock up. But what I will say is up to the gating, he'd made 26 times your money. I think this is off my memory. So against the market of 12 times, which is a pretty extraordinary game. He did get himself into a, obviously into some kind of mess, but I think the media, I'll finish this really more on this at the moment and say, if he started it, the media finished it. And one of the things I should have probably learned or known to see that I've been dealing with the media for a long time is that they have got a very big influence. And I don't think they always realise how big an influence they had. All I'd say is that, if you replace Woodford's name with Lloyd's Bank, you would have a run on Lloyd's Bank, in my view. So 
perhaps I'll leave it there. So, yeah, it's always a humbling, you know, investment's a humbling experience. Maybe that's what I should have started off with when you first asked me. That's one of the things you learn, that you want to be right all the time, but you're not going to be. And you're always going to learn. And in another interview with you, I can go through the learning bits as well that we've learned from that. But it was not a great experience, <laughs> to say the least. It did bring some tears, and some of those were mine. <laughs> no, Mark, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's very, very kind of you to go and, and share anything with me regarding that. So I know it's been very, very difficult for you and, and family as well. I will just touch and go back a little bit about your views currently about best buy lists for funds, etc., and what your thoughts are about it. Are you still positive about them? Are you still proactive about them? Or have you changed slightly? Well, best buy list, yeah. You know, I sort of started the whole thing 20 years ago or so when I went up with one of the ideas of Peter. I said, look, there's only about 10% of funds are worth looking at. It's actually less than that, I think, to be honest with you. Well, in fact, one of the guys that I found on Twitter is called Fund Hunter. Very well worth following, by the way. And he reckons it's more like 1% because he looks for funds and he's a bright guy. So my idea was to condense that because we've got thousands of funds. And so for a lot of beginners, where do you start with? So if you can bring it down to some funds, that's a greater. And so in that way, I still think it is. I think they're still worth it for private investors to look at. But it doesn't mean they're all right. And I go back to patience. You know, I said to some media people years, oh, a few years ago when it came to our list. And I said, well, I can make it a top list if you want. And they went, well, why don't you? I said, yeah, well, I'll do is I'll go back to Lipper, which is one of the statisticians you can find. I said, I'll take their best funds for five years. Let's go five years. I'll take the best funds. And on each sector, I'll take their two best funds and put them on the list. And then I'll roll it every three months. And then I'll always have the best list. And my idea of a best list was not the best fund straight away, but was to say, if you want a Japanese fund, I think this is the Japanese fund to look at. Or I think this might be the recovery fund to look at. It doesn't mean it'll be blisteringly brilliant in the next three or four years. Depends on the markets and whatever. So it's never going to be perfect. And in some ways, I think they've been misunderstood, really. And I think HL also suffered from the fact that they all thought it was all about commercialization. Well, there is commercialization because, you know, newspapers don't write articles for free. So, yes, there's commercialization in it. But I never, when, when we first started, the first thing I said was, well, you'll negotiate deals with these groups. I know you will, but I don't want to know what they are. So it was always a Chinese war. So if I recommended a fund, I had no idea what HL got from it. I'd always walk out of anything like that. And then post RDR, well, everything was open then. So I did know what deals. And actually, I tried to contribute to that. I got the fees down. Actually, the worst thing I found with the media was having been criticised for not knowing, for knowing and then trying to get them down, which is what they wanted themselves and the FCA, we then got criticised for it, which I found really amazing. Because I think one of the things that HL did was to get the cost of investing down for a lot of people. And frankly, fund groups have had it away for years in fees. And I know they say HL platform fees is high, but I would actually say, here's something controversial, I'd say the platforms deserve more money than the fund managers in fees. And why? Because they take on all the risk. Woodford's a good example, if you want, really. They take on the risk. They do all the management in terms of all the admin and everything. Whereas the fund, setting up a fund management group, although it's got more expensive, is nothing like setting up a platform. Ongoing investment on a platform is incredible. So most people could start a fund management group with a fairly small amount of money. But if you said to me, start a platform, I'd say, well, all right, how many millions and millions and millions have you got, Peter? 
and it's going to take us quite a few years to break even. So you're going to support it all the way through that. That's why it's been quite hard to catch HL. Everyone thinks it's easy. They all think that you've just got to be there and people will come. They, they won't. <laughs> yeah, well, and lots of people have tried. I've seen lots of platforms come and go in the time that Harry Vines have grown. So, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. It's a tough job. It's a tough business, exactly. Now, you've touched on performance fees, so I will ask you this question, Mark. I say around 40% of investment trusts charge a performance fee. What are your thoughts on that and views on this? Because I know that it's something that you've tried to combat in the past as well. We're going back to fund charges again. And incredibly, I mean, we, I was a bit naive on before. I'm going right back. There were a few funds, unit trusts as well, that started to put performance fees on. And we didn't spend a lot of time looking at it very initially. Then we did. I don't know what it was. A year or so later, we started looking at these things and saying, well, hang on. These funds, some of these funds are getting performance fees, but they're not outperforming. And then we started looking at it. And this is where it gets complicated because performance fees, they're as transparent as mud and they're complicated. And so for private investors, I mean, if you look at some of the performance fees on VCTs, and I hold some of them, you need to go into a dark room and hit yourself over the head. I mean, my God. But that alone means that it's going to be expensive. That's always, if you don't understand it, you know it's going to be expensive. So we looked at these, and then it came down to things like high water marks, crystallization. Some of them were three months. So you could have a year where you did really badly, but one three-month quarter you did brilliantly and caught a load of money. And so you look at investment trusts. I mean, Allianz took 24 million in 2000 because of their performance in technology. Well, wow, okay, they, they might have done a bit better than the market, but 24 million pounds. That was nearly 4% AMC that year. And Henderson, Henderson Tech back in 2000 was, I can't remember what it was, 40 million? Anyway, they set up Polar on the back of it. I mean, that's how much money they took. And that's because they were, I think their benchmark was the MSCI World Index, not a tech benchmark. No correlation with it. And I'm amazed at how many people are so cool with giving fund managers who, I mean, I haven't met many poor fund managers, Peter, and it is absolutely nuts that this goes on. Now, there are a few cases where if you try to keep a fund fairly small as a fund manager, you know that you're not, you can't grow the AUM because you can't run the fund to 10 billion or whatever. Then I, I can see it as long as, it, again, it's transparent. But most of the time, the fees are just, they don't align the shareholder or the unit holder at all. They, they always say that, but how does it align the shareholder? Well, what it does is line the pockets of the fund manager brilliantly well. And I'm really shocked. I mean, with, at least with the investment trusts, some of the boards have been taking action and stopping it. But I don't begin to understand those who've still got them on the whole. I couldn't sit on a board with some of those fees. Just absurd. I mean, you get, you're aligned with the fund manager anyway, because you get a, you get a percentage fee as hopefully it goes up. So that should align you with the shareholder and unit holders perfectly well. But performance fees mainly are just feel to me like just a terrible ripoff. What does the fund manager do? Does he suddenly do, I've got a performance fee, so suddenly I'm going to perform better. I'm going to do a different job. I'm going to do something different. Fund managers are just like kids, okay? Uh, kids at school, if you're at school and you used to have your school report and you used to be placed in the form, you know, were you at the bottom quarter of the form or were you the top, one of the tops of the form? Well, fund managers, that's how they treat it. That's how they love it. I've met a few fund managers who, who don't love being in that top bit. They want to be the top school report. They don't want to be at the bottom. So what does a performance fee? Are they suddenly going to pull out something they've never done before? In which case, 
they haven't been doing the job properly anyway. So, so I don't understand why you're getting paid extra for, is what I'm really saying. No, I love that reply and, th and thank you ever so much for that. Investing Matters in association with London Southeast, one of the UK's leading share information websites for the private investor community. Providing share prices, news and data straight to your desktop, tablet and phone. The other person and lots of other people are doing major, major work in the sense of addressing some of these issues is your good friend, Annabelle Brody-Smith at Association of Investment Companies. And you gave her a really big shout out in the press X amount of uh, months ago now. Well, I guess she does a brilliant job. I mean, she's been doing that for 25 years and investment trusts were a backwater, really. They have reasons for being a backwater. I mean, I get accused of not liking investment trusts. It's not true. It's just I'm the only one who will also criticise them because everyone's now fallen in love with them, mainly because of Annabelle. <laughs> because of Annabelle. <laughs> well, she does such a brilliant job. She does. I mean, it's a trade association, so I wouldn't expect her not to beef up IT, but she's done a fantastic job. And I think things like Dividend Heroes, all that. Wow, what a great marketing job. I, I think it has certain problems that boards, you know, get themselves stuck with having to raise dividends all the time, which I don't think is always a good thing. But she's done a fab job. And half, I mean, most of the media, most of the media are now in love with investment trusts where they weren't sort of 20 years ago. And so I've got to hand it to her. What a good job. And she, she I think she does battle behind the scenes on, on fees or whatever. I've not actually talked to her specifically. I can't remember on performance fees, but I don't want to speak for her on, in that way. But no, she, she, her and the team do a fantastic job and they continue to do that. But I think all of that's built on the back of the stuff that, other people, including yourself, have done. And I think together, the investment industry is improving. There's still room for improvement as well. Well, I think, Peter, can I say, I think the most important thing, I mean, she does a great job because obviously she's a, it's a trade association. What I don't like, and it's not her, it's all of us in a way, is that we all get into sort of, you have investment trust zealots, you have passive zealots, you have, you know, active, you know all, all of it. And I think we need to be more pragmatic as an industry because if you're a newbie looking in, you'd be saying, well, hang on, hang on, this person says investment trusts are the only way to go. And then, oh, hang on, this person says, no, no, just buy passives. This person says, just buy this. And I've always felt, well, it isn't just buy this. It's take the best of all of it, if you can. And so if I look at America, where it's very hard to find a fund, most of the time, you might as well just buy the S&P 500 index, a passive fund. Buy a passive fund, really, because it's such a high-quality index. Very, very hard to beat. Don't let's have an argument about it. Generally speaking, people would be better off with that. But it doesn't mean that they're better off in passive everywhere, necessarily. You've just answered four of my questions going forward. I'm not sure how I'm going to weave them in or out now, but thank you very, very much. So I'm going to skip those questions and ask you about the funds that you're actually a non-exec director in, which is the Invesco Income Growth Trust and the Jupiter Emerging Frontier Income Trust. I've changed the names. Well, it's actually Invesco Select now because we merged it. One of the big problems with the investment trusts, in my view, is about 200 of them are too small. Uh, the one argument that I have with the media and Annabelle, well, not less Annabelle, perhaps, but is liquidity. And it's not liquidity of the fund manager running the trust. It's the liquidity of being a buy and sell as a broker. An individual doesn't really come into it because most individuals are going to buy, uh, I don't know, five grand's worth or 10 grand. You can pretty much do that on most trusts. But, you know, HL got criticised a lot or has been criticised a lot for investment. If you're an execution-only platform, Please explain to me, if I suggested a, on a list, 
to have, I don't know, XYZ fund and it's 60 million pounds in size, at HL, I might get a 20 million pound order on the Monday morning if I did it on the Friday. How the hell am I going to fulfill that order? Well, you can't. And conversely, of course, you couldn't sell it either. So I banged my head against a brick wall with this so many times. I just find it incredible. So, okay, Scottish mortgage, yeah? Everyone's throwing Scottish mortgage at me. Well, okay, fine. You should be able to buy and sell that. But how many other trusts are the size of Scottish mortgage? Well, there aren't. And frankly, you need to be 500 million pounds in size and over to get anywhere. So we merged the select trust. It's still not big enough. And the Jupiter one, well, we're folding it up now, basically, because it's too small and it had an annual redemption. This is one of the ironies of investment trusts, because in a way they want to be like unit trusts, but don't tell anyone because they want to be able to buy and they want to be able to bring funds in as well. You can only ever bring funds in when you're a premium which if you think about it is a bit odd. I mean, there's one raising money today, but you're paying a 5% premium, I think for it. And investment trusts are cheap, they tell me. It's one of the ironies. And the other side of the coin is people want to get out or bigger wealth managers. So then you have to, to have some kind of redemption policy. So suddenly, I mean, on Jelf, unfortunately, we had a yearly one. And if you go to a discount, some people suddenly realize that they can get in at the fund at a 6% discount, and then six months later, redeem it all at par. So actually, they really want open-ended funds, don't they? I mean, it's one of the wonderful sort of paradoxes of investment trusts. Well, that paradox has only happened in, of late because of technology we've got, the speed of transactions and all the rest of it. And I think that's actually diminishing investing. I'm not sure you agree with me on that, Mark, but the speed of just accelerated. You and other people and friends of mine who were investing in the 90s and the early 2000s were buying, holding, forgetting. Now it's on the phones all the time it's like i'm in and out of the stock or in and out of a fund and a fund was meant to be held for three four five fifteen years not three weeks in between rate capital raising well exactly but as i said everyone talks a long-term game but actually most of them don't play the long-term game and as soon as something hits the fan they suddenly all want to get out well investment trusts come with a problem the smaller ones come with a problem that you can't as a broker you can't as execution only you can't do that i mean if you're a wealth manager and you've got a trust you can eke it out over weeks and weeks but if i've got buy and sell orders as an execution only what do i say to these people can't fulfill your order peter actually what happens at hl is we've got about 300 people on help desk the whole bank of help desk all lights up frankly people don't understand investment trust still you know, so they'll look at the paper or on the internet and say it's 50p and then they'll see, well, you bought it at 53p. So you've written me off or you've sold it at 48p or 47p. And so the idea that all investment trusts are cheap as well. And when there's times of trouble, they can go out to spreads of 10, 15 percent. So all I'm saying is it's not as easy as everybody kind of makes out, really. There's some real practical issues. And I do wish some of the media would come into any of the platforms and just sit there and, and look at it and say, and go to the dealing desk and say, well, this is what happens. I mean, one person, I won't say who it was, copied my best buy list, used some investment trusts, and she used, I think it was Acorn Income in the best buy list. I mean, it seemed like a good fund. I could see why she might have chosen it, but she had no idea about liquidity. It was 26 million pounds in size. And her just putting it on there caused huge problems at HL with people trying to buy it. You know, and people get very resentful when you say we can't do it or the prices. The market makers aren't daft. They see you coming, don't they? They put the price up. They do. Now, Mark, I'm conscious of the time that we've got on here. And I want you to talk about your fantastic book, Effective Investing. 
And what you were trying to do... Well, it's a bit out of date. It was brilliant. No, it's been, all right. It's been out since 2015, but and I hope you're going to write another one. But you're trying to simplify how people build wealth by investing in funds, essentially. So I want you to briefly talk about that and how you went about it, because the whole point of writing a book is to try and simplify. You're trying to make sure that people learn about the history of funds, learn about the caveats and the nuances, but also are given the tools to purchase and become DIY investors of. And I think you captured that brilliantly for the DIY investor. However, my thing that I want you to share with us is the learning from the book and what people should get from it and why they should go back and buy a copy now. Well, you can have a laugh by buying it now because, as you know, all investment books become out of date. And I shared some of the stuff that I bought because I tend to eat my own cooking. So you can all have a bit of And it does need updating. The trouble is, I'll let you into a secret, Peter. That was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, write that book. I write articles, but writing a book, and I have to say my thanks to Jonathan Davies, who helped me, who's a great journalist as well. Without his help, it's amazingly hard to write a book. And also, it was quite a learning experience for me, because if you're in an organisation, when I was at HL, you have fantastic, I can ring up any fund manager, basically, and speak to them, pretty much. It's, I mean, you get fantastic access to all the best people and whatever when you're not I so I had to write this book and thought well hang on I'm writing to an audience that haven't got this they can't just pick up the phone to Nick Train and say well why are you still running Pearson Nick or why are you still doing this or or whatever and actually that became the toughest bit because if I hadn't realized before I realized then how hard it is for private investors the information is better out there now but you've got to spend time and I think too many people, even DIYing, don't spend enough time on investment. You can't do it in five minutes. You've got to do reading. And if you're not really prepared to do that, then either buy passive investments or go to a financial planner, wealth manager, let someone else do it for you. It might not produce you the results that you might, but you've got to put some effort into it. And actually done lots of research and and I've seen, I've brought lots of clients into HL. We've talked to them and some spend a lot of time and others. I mean, I remember one chap saying, I, I go on, I look at the, the line. If the line's going up, I buy the fund. OK. And here's another lovely story I had years and years ago at HL when someone rushed in at the old day. This is before we had all the electronics. And ISA, ISA or PEP, it might have been PEP days, I don't know, came in and said, I want to buy that planet. I want to buy the planet. And I said, what do you mean the planet? He said, well, you know, the planet. And I went, Neptune. He said, no, 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 another planet. I said, Jupiter. He said, that's the one. I want two of them. He said, I want two of them. So give me two of them. That, that was it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's all the information that individual knew. And that was it. He'd obviously seen the advert, seen a bit of the media. Jupiter were performing well, and that's it. And, you know, most people still do. Lots of people still do that. They don't spend much time on it. So the book was sort of, I don't suppose many people have even read the book, really. I mean, financial books don't don't sell. I read, I read a lot, Mark. I, I tend to be like Munger and Buffett, just a, just a pair of legs and a book. That's it. I do enjoy my reading. Well, Nick Train has his own library. And he expects most people to read. Well, well because they're not churning and, and, and having to research as many stocks because they're buying hold individuals there at that fund. So, yeah, read, read, read and consume because that's how you learn about what's really going on. So, so you need to do that and spend time on it. And you do need to spend time on understanding a bit on macro as well. I mean, yeah, and, and this is what's causing me problems now because I've always sort of chucked it slightly to one side. But 
I think we're coming to the end of a 40 year bull market. I think my 40 years marks, <laughs> it's easy for me to say that, but I look back and I say, we've had a bull market in interest rates, basically. And I think it's all gonna begin to, to end. I think we might have one more run, but I think that next decade is gonna be very different. Uh, I haven't covered that in the book because these are only my thoughts of the last three or four years, really. Okay, with that in mind then, and we're, we're running out of time, what strategies are you going to change or what are you going to put in place for your next, let's say, five, ten years, different strategy going forward? That is one of the problems I've got at this very moment because I'm a patient, you know, do-nothing investor, really, on the whole, because I think that's what makes you more money. And that's what I'm grappling with right now because I think there's going to be a big change. I think we're going to go into much more, I think we're going to have a bear market, and then out of that bear market won't come tech. I think tech will always be there, but I think industrials, I think we're going to be see reshoring supply lines because of COVID. Now the Ukraine, people are going to bring manufacturing back. So the whole thing's going to change, probably less consumer, more industrial. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with the portfolio at the moment, because what I want as a retiring person is income. So, of course, I've liked what's unfashionable over the last few years, which is equity income, which has done me very well over the years as well as other sector. So that's what I'm sort of looking in. But I've got a lot of cash at the moment, sort of waiting, really. And of course, those on Twitter tell me I'm mad because you can't time markets, of which I respect as well. But I think it's just a very, I'm glad I'm not advising directly on people now because I think it's just, this is the toughest time I've ever known. This bull market has gone on for 40 years and I think we're going to be in trouble sometime over the next year or so. I, I don't quite know how it's going to happen, but everything just, lots of stuff just doesn't feel right to me. Hmm. Well, I'm in agreement with you with have holding a, a sizable amount of cash in a sense of cash is king, because when the liquidity event happens and things decline, that's then there is an opportunity for you and I that have got cash. Those are fully invested that are just going to be watching the market go, OK, when's my next house allowance available for me? You know, having the cash available gives you and me and everybody else an opportunity. Now, I've got a final question for you. and I'm going to give you, Mark, an Aladdin's lamp. OK, I'm granting you one wish with regards to something you can change to ensure that all investors, and imagine now that you've got a son, he's going to inherit most of what you and your wife leave eventually, right? <laughs> Beyond 2022, with regards to the investment industry, work in the best interest of everybody, what's your instant thought of what you would change and why? The betterment of, every, the betterment of everybody, and you've got three minutes, go for it. What would I change? I've got no idea straight away. I mean, the industry is so sort of vast. I just lo I'd love it to work in a more unified way. That's what I'd actually like. Like I said earlier, not having all this fighting over which is best, you know, which best vehicle is or whatever. Just an industry that works together because to get more investors in. Because the one thing I do know is that investment does improve the quality of your life over the years. So you do want to get people out of keeping all their money in cash. Or, you know, the people who set up cash ISIS for their children. Well, I mean, when my son was born, I put it in, started an emerging market fund in 1990, just putting money in monthly. Monthly money, just easy way of investing. You know, it's when you get to the accumulated stage, it's harder. But that's what I really like. Get more people involved in market and make de-jargonize the industry. We, we all still talk too much of that. And, and just get more people investing because they'd be better off in the longer run. You're investing over 30 or 40 years. You've got to be better off in real assets than in cash. So that would be my big wish. Just get more people involved. Brilliant. You see, you did it. Fantastic reply. I love that.
I don't know quite how. I honestly don't. I, when you said that only one question, I thought, oh, my God. I have been caught out by media so many times with that. No, I won't, I won't try and catch you up. Mark, it's been an absolute joy to have you on. And we're going to have to do this again at some point in the future. I've enjoyed it, Peter. It's been good fun. It's been great. Uh, thank you ever so much for being on the Investing Matters podcast. It's been a delight having you on and wishing you continued good health, continued education for all. And the stuff that you do on Twitter is brilliant. So I will encourage everybody else to follow Mark on his Twitter account as well. And um, just keep up the good work. God bless you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.